0: And uh, how good it is just to sing God's praises today together, and to rejoice together in who Jesus is. He is the worthy one. Today is uh, the last day that I'll have opportunity to preach uh, for my internship, and uh, it has been a great blessing and a great privilege and honor to open God's Word Uh, To his people here at Calvary, you are all very dear to my heart. And it has been good to um, rejoice with you, to cry with you, um, and to sing God's praises together with you. And I pray that there will be more opportunity for that. Today we are looking at Christ as prophet, priest, and king. That the work of Christ in his humiliation and the work of Christ in his exaltation as our prophet, priest, and king. And this is the culmination of a sermon series I've been doing from January to now. We looked at prophet with Ezekiel 37, we looked at priest in 1 John 3, and we looked at king last Sunday in 2 Samuel 7. Our text for today is Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 5. The Supremacy of God's Son. A few years ago, I was working with my dad renovating a house, and he had hired an electrician to work with him. He he knew the electrician. And the electrician, uh, my dad was showing him through the house the old wiring, and the electrician said, Jesus, Murphy, as a a curse word. Um, And my dad, not missing a beat right away said, well, I don't think Jesus' last name was Murphy, and I don't much appreciate that. And Jesus' last name was not Jesus Christ either. He was probably referred to as Jesus, son of Joseph. But Christ is a divine title. It's a title of appointment and a title of anointment. Throughout the Bible, there were many little Christs. There were many Messiahs, which is the Hebrew word for Christ or anointed one. We see that God uses these anointed men to mediate the relationship between God and man. And there were three offices that had anointings. The office of prophet, from Moses all the way down to Malachi. The office of priests were anointed from Aaron to Ezra. These were those who went into the holy place and interceded on Israel's behalf. And the kings from Saul, although David is probably more appropriate to start with, all the way to Jehoiakim. We have the kings who are anointed to mediate the relationship between God and man. We see sometimes there's blurring between the offices. Sometimes uh, one little Messiah would take on the attributes of the other ones. In David's ministry, last week we saw him as the king, yes. But before that chapter, in chapter 6, he is leading the priestly procession of the Ark of the Covenant into David's city, into Jerusalem. He is wearing the ephod, that the priest would wear. Uh, And he is acting as a priest in some ways. Not fully, though. Christ, Jesus, is fully a priest, prophet, and king. He fulfills all of the offices perfect. They are perfectly balanced in him and perfectly integrated in him. And we see that at the work of the cross in his resurrection, but we're going to move right to his exaltation. The Heidelberg Catechism, question number 31, asks this question. Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed one? Answer. Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been appointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and the will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father. And our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom of God. He has one for us. Christ is our prophet, our priest and our king. And we see that in His humiliation and in His exaltation. And what I mean by humiliation is I mean Christ's life from the womb to the tomb on this earth, his humiliation. He was humbled as a man. He reveals himself to be the prophet preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sin and revealing God's glory to us. And he reveals himself to be our priest, not by offering the blood of bulls and goats, but by offering himself as a sacrifice. And he is our king. He invades this world, defeating sin and death and the devil and setting the captives free. And he is put... In the position of authority on the majesty on high at his right hand. And we see this all very clearly in uh, the first chapter and then the first few verses of Hebrews, Hebrews 1 1 to 5. And the context for Hebrews, this is written to uh, Jewish believers, uh, probably most likely in Rome. Uh, Around the time of Nero, but before persecution. Because in chapter 12 of Hebrews, we read that their blood has not been spilt for the gospel yet. So they haven't faced hard persecution yet. But it's written to the Hebrews, and what it is doing is encouraging them to persevere in their faith and trust of Jesus. They were tempted to move back to the Old Testament and to be uh, doing the law and working out the law and working out their salvation through offering sacrifice and keeping the rules of cleanliness and these things that are fulfilled in Christ. They are tempted to go back to what they know. And so the author of Hebrews is bringing them back in. And he does that by showing Christ's supremacy that Christ is supreme over all. And in Hebrews, there's a lot of, in this first chapter and later on, there's a lot of talk of angels, that he's made higher than the angels. He was made lower than the angels. And this is because angels in the rabbinical school in Judaism held a place of reverence. They were the messengers of God. Christ comes as a great prophet who is greater than the angels who brings the greatest message of God ever, the Gospel. So as we read these first five verses, examine your own heart and how you view Christ. And I pray that this sermon will encourage you to see Him as the great prophet He is, to see Him as the great priest that He is, and to see Him as the great king that He is. So let's read... First, Hebrews, or Hebrews 1, 1 to 5. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we thank you for Christ, that he was the only begotten Son, that he came and executed the offices of prophet, priest, and king that the Old Testament pointed to the coming of this great Messiah who would be obedient even to the point of death. And Lord, we praise you and we lift up the name of Jesus that he indeed is able to save us from our sins and usher us into your kingdom and into your glory. And we bless your name that you have given us the adoption of sons through Jesus, that you love us even as you loved him. Lord, help us today to glorify your name and lift up his name. We pray that all unrepentant hearts would be drawn to Christ Jesus. Amen. Right away in the beginning, the author lays out the ways in which God has spoken to his people. Long ago, throughout all the Old Testament at many times, at the different dispensations, we'll say, the different times that God spoke, in the exile, in Israel, in the wilderness, and in many ways, many different ways of revelation, through dreams and through visions, and even through angels. But... In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Greater than all the Old Testament, and greater than even the witness of creation itself, we read in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. And Paul makes it clear in Romans 1 that God's glory has been made known to man so that we are without excuse. And there's no excuse then and there's no excuse now because God has spoken to his people through a greater word, who is Jesus. Greater and louder than even creation speaks Christ our Lord. He is the supreme prophet. He has spoken to us through his Son. Through the Word. This is what 1 John 1, 1 1-3 establishes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. See, Jesus... As God created all things, He is the Word become flesh, and we've seen His glory. Here we see something remarkable about this great prophet. He is not only a prophet, but He is the means by which the office of prophet is accomplished. He is the Word, He's the very Word of God. He's not just a mouthpiece for God, not like the other prophets. No! He is the living Word of God. And He's the Word that brought life at the beginning of creation. And the Word that's bringing new life, crafted out of the old, right now. And He sustains every aspect of the universe. Beginning and end, time, everything that we see and everything we cannot see, He has created it and He governs over it. He upholds it, He sustains it. That's what Hebrews, the author says in verse 3b. And He upholds the universe by what? By the word of His power. Christ upholds the universe as a great creator prophet by the word of his power. And Christ is speaking even now, and he's sustaining all things by his speech. He is the creator prophet, creating life by the words of his mouth. And when we uh, looked back in January at Ezekiel 37, we saw that Ezekiel as a prophet is commanded. He goes in a vision, and he goes into the valley of death, and there's bones everywhere and the prophet starts to speak the word of God, and something miraculous happens. The bones come together, and sinews come together, and flesh covers them, and skin covers them. Layer upon layer, we see God's word creating new life out of the old. And Jesus, in his humiliation, while he's on the earth, as a man, as the God-man, he is also creating new life through his speech and through his word. He performs many miracles and many signs that reveal who God is, that reveal the glory of God, that he is the God of life. Jesus, throughout his ministry, he says to the lame, pick up your mat and walk. And they do. Jesus, throughout his ministry, he says to the blind, Receive your sight. And they do. And Jesus, when his dear friend is dead and buried in the tomb, wrapped up in layers upon layers of burial wrappings, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. Jesus, as the great prophet, brings about new life through his word. And that is all through the gospel. He reveals God through his miracles. Initiated by his speech. And that brings newness of life. And shows us what God is like. But Christ in his person also reveals that he is God. Throughout the gospels. There's no mistaking it. Jesus is very clear. He claims to be God and he is God. He says, he who sees me sees the Father, and the Father and I are one. And the author of Hebrews makes it very clear in Hebrews 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When we were leaving Ottawa, my wife and I uh, were driving through North Gower on our way to Kingston, and we saw... uh, a church with, uh, in the church billboard, there was a a phrase, and on the church billboard it said, Jesus is God's selfie. Jesus is God's selfie. And it's sort of silly and funny, but it it dilutes the word of God, because Jesus is more than just God's selfie. Jesus is not just a two-dimensional photograph of God. He is fully God. And all through the Old Testament, we see composite images. We see pictures of who Jesus is going to be. But we don't know until he fully comes who he is. We can guess. We can piece together. But he himself reveals God. He reveals the radiance of God. God's glory is revealed in Jesus. Just as the light of the sun, and that sun, S-U-N, is inseparable from the sun itself, so too the sun, S-O-N, Jesus, is inseparable from God himself. We see that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory very explicitly at the transfiguration, don't we? When God, when Jesus goes up to the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John, and he reveals his glory to them, and it mirrors what happens with Moses when Moses hides in the cleft of the rock and God passes over him. And Moses is right there with Jesus, and Elijah is right there with Jesus. And so Christ has his references. He has the law, Moses, as a reference on his application. And he has the prophet, Elijah, one of the great prophets, on his, for a reference on his application. And he's perfectly equipped for the role of our great prophet. And they sign over their authority to Christ. He reveals the glory of the law and the prophets, and Christ is clear that he doesn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Prophets did not primarily foretell future events. That wasn't their primary function, although that was part of what they did. But rather, what they did is they spoke to their contemporary society, and they exposed idols. In their society, idols that had replaced God. And Jesus does this work as a prophet too. He exposes the law as an idol. For the religious leaders, the law was the end all and be all. For them, the law was their God. It's an idol and Christ exposes that idol of their heart and he shows them the sin of their heart and that's part of the reason why they hate Christ is because he shows them their idols and at Christ's passion which we read in our responsive reading when Christ is sentenced to death and when he is hung on the cross we see that they scoff him as a prophet the religious leaders blindfold him and slap him before he goes to the cross. And they say to him, this is in Matthew 26, verse 67, then they spit on him and in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? They mock him as a prophet. And they mock the word through whom they have their own existence. And they mock Him as the Christ, the anointed one of God. They deny Him as their prophet, and they deny Him as their Christ. And we all do that too. Or we have done that. And perhaps we will do that. Because we don't like when God, through Christ, reveals our idols when he speaks to us, when he convicts us with sin. We don't like Jesus as a prophet. Instead, we want to listen to ourselves, listen to our hearts, or listen to our government, or listen to our friends, or listen to our family. And we reject Christ as our prophet. The author of Hebrews makes it clear that his mission is for those Jewish believers to persevere. And the only time that we see Jesus actually named, because in the first chapters we see him referred to as the Son, is when the author of Hebrews says he's greater than Moses, the great prophet. That's interesting. But in chapter 3, verse 15... We say, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in your rebellion. See, we can do this too. If we hear Jesus ministering to our lives and speaking truth into our lives through his spirit or through other believers, we can harden our hearts. But don't do that. Soften them. Repent. Cry out to Christ and say, Have mercy on me, and he will. And he will deliver you. And he'll purify you from your sins. Which brings us to, uh, I guess, the the second point of our first point, that Christ is our high priest. Let's read verse 3 again. Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The priests were responsible in the Old Testament for offering sacrifices, for making atonement on the people's behalf, for making intercession on their behalf. But they were also prohibited in the law from owning property. And they were told to live among the people, to know the people who they were making intercession for. And they weren't allowed to have property so that they were dependent and reliant on the people to care for them. And also so that they could build deep affection with their community. And know their pains and their weaknesses. And so that when they made intercession and prayed for the people, they would be able to pray specifically for the people of God and their specific needs. Jesus comes to us as our great high priest because he does offer sacrifice not of the blood of goats and bulls but of himself. And Jesus also comes alongside us and works alongside us and ministers alongside us as our high priest. You see this in his ministry in the Gospels that he is drawn to the least of these. He's drawn to the sick, to the widows, to the orphans. He cares deeply for those who need care and who need intercession. And we all need the intercession of our great high priest, And we all need purification of sins because without that we cannot come before God and we are not reconciled but Christ comes as a great high priest and he's also the Lamb of God John, his cousin one of the last prophets the transitionary prophet between the Old and New Testament, John says behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. He's speaking of Jesus. And so we see that Jesus is not only the office of priest, but he is also the means by which it is accomplished. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You ever notice how three of the four Gospels Go to lengths to describe the tomb that Christ has put in as clean. It had never been used before. It was an unused tomb. When the priests were offering sacrifices in, in Leviticus, we're told that the burnt offering was to be placed in a clean place after it was offered, it was to be moved to a clean place. So the Gospel writers are showing us that Jesus is the greater offering. He is the greatest offering ever offered. And He was offered once and for all. Christ's body is put in a tomb that has never been used because He is the perfect sacrifice of God. the Scripture connects and relates and colors in who Jesus is. When Christ is on the cross, in His humiliation, in His passion, the leaders and the people scoff and ridicule Him as a priest. You saved others. Save yourself come down off the cross this is how christ accomplished our salvation is by denying himself he became the sin offering that we needed he atoned for our sins that's why he couldn't come off the cross because coming off the cross he wouldn't be able to save anyone it was required it was required so they deny him and his atoning work on the cross. They deny him as a priest. And they mock him about him destroying the temple and rebuilding it. The place where the priests operated. The place where the people came to pray. And each one of us, whether we're trusting in Christ right now or whether we're not, we do reject the work of Christ. At times. We think that our sin is too great. That Christ could never atone for the things I've done. The evil I've done. Or maybe on the other side, we think we're really good. And that us, ourselves, the good things we do, and how we treat other people will save us. But it won't. Those are filthy rags. Only the work of Christ can save us. Only his atoning work work, as our high priest can save us. And we won't be put to shame by trusting in his salvation. There is no other name by which you can be saved. Only the name of Jesus. Only the work of Christ as our high priest through his atoning work on the cross through His work as the Lamb of God, through His work in His humiliation, can we be saved. Romans ten nine 9-11 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scriptures say, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. We can rely on Christ. And we can rely on the work that He accomplished on the cross. He gave Himself up willingly to be a propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God as only a man who was fully man and fully God could. He reconciled us to God. And he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. He is seated as a priest. His work is done. The priests in the Old Testament were always standing, they were always sacrificing, they were always killing the animals to make atonement for sin. But Christ does his work on the cross, and in his ascension, he sits down because the work of purification for sin is done. He died once and for all, he died for us. So it brings us to Christ as our king. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, he's in the position of authority as a king. Let's read Hebrews 1, 4-5. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son And the author continues on and he strings together these beautiful pearls from the Old Testament and shows beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus is indeed greater than the angels, that Jesus is indeed greater than all created beings because he's the creator God. The Son is superior to the angels just as his name is greater than theirs. And what is the name of this son? The author of Hebrews doesn't tell us in these first five verses. But we know the name of this son who God spoke through, who God made purifications through, who is seated even now at the right hand of the majesty on high. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus Christ. We read in Philippians 2, verse 8 to 11, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is superior to all names in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He is, the, he is greater than the angels. He is greater than humans. And He is greater than the demonic forces that seek to destroy us and Him. Christ came not only as a prophet And not only as a priest, but also as a king. He invades this world to redeem the captives. To break us out of sin and bondage. Throughout his ministry, there is huge amounts of demonic activity. Because the enemy wants to thwart the Son of Man. The enemy doesn't want this king to succeed. And we see that the... Whenever Christ comes near an unclean spirit, they cry out. And the demons say, You are the Son of God. The demons are afraid. He is the one who's in authority. He's the King. And he wills authority. When he sends out the 72, they come back and they're amazed. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. There's power in Christ's name. It's the name that's above the angels. It's above us as created humans, and it is above those who are under the earth, those who dwell in darkness, the demonic powers at work. His name is great. And Jesus came as the Son of God, yes, as God's only begotten Son, but also He is called the Son of Man, which is a title that refers to Daniel 7. And that title, as much as it is pointing to Christ's divinity, it is also pointing to Christ's humanity, that He is fully God and fully man. He is Ben-Adam. He's the Son of Man. And... He succeeds where every son of God, every king of God failed in the weakness of human flesh. Christ actually succeeds. We see this in Christ's temptation with Satan in the wilderness. Satan takes him up to the high place as the last temptation, the third temptation. He says, everything I will give to you that you can see, all the kingdoms of this world, if you will bow down and worship me. but Christ rebukes the tempter and he rebukes Satan. He is the true Israelite. He is the true king. He is the faithful servant. He's tempted in the wilderness and he succeeds. We read that Jesus says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him, in o- him only you shall serve. And then we're told that the devil left, and angels came and ministered to him. The kingdoms of this world and the glories of this world pale in comparison to the kingdom of God. And Jesus knows this because it's his kingdom that he's building, it's his kingdom that he's establishing in our hearts and in this church. He is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail. We saw that last week in 2 Samuel 7. He's building a great and glorious temple in the work of His body and in the work of His church. But Christ, in His work on the cross, and even before He goes to the cross, is mocked and ridiculed as a king. He's mocked and ridiculed by the Romans who have a kingdom of their own. He's put, on, he's put in a robe of scarlet, and they press in the crown of thorns, and they give him a scepter of straw, and they bow down to him in mock humility and say, Hail, King of the Jews. The Romans reject him as a king. But the Jews also reject him as a king. Because on the cross, we see and we read the mocking of Christ on the cross. But we see that they mock him. The scribes and the elders also mock him. They say, he is king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. These people know exactly who Jesus is. And if you know anything about bullies and mocking and ridicule, more often than not, they mock who you are. Hey, four eyes, nice glasses. Well, yeah, I have glasses. But here, Christ... Well, I don't have glasses. Here, Christ... Is mocked for exactly who he is. He is the King of Glory. He is the Son of God. But he's rejected by the Romans. He's rejected by the Jews. He's rejected by those he came to save. As a suffering servant, he suffers rejection, ridicule, and humiliation. And we detach ourselves from Christ, saying, "Oh, he's fully God and fully man," but. It was severe ridicule and severe mockery, and his body was wounded, he was afflicted by those he loved. The great poet, humanist poet, William Ernest Henley has a poem called Invictus, and you might be familiar with it if you've seen uh, the Matt Damon movie Invictus. With Morgan Freeman about rugby. But Invictus is Latin for unconquerable. And the last stanza of the poem, the poet is looking death in the face and he says something deeply disturbing. He says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul." You see, we're so in love with ourselves. We think that we're captains of our fate and masters of our soul, but we're not. We need to be taken captive by Jesus Christ, who's the great King, who captivates our hearts. Scripture is clear that if you are putting yourself on the throne in self-service. You're a child of the devil, a king of this world, the king of this world. You belong to him in your sin. We need one who's greater than us, one who's greater than the devil, who can dethrone him and claim his rightful throne. And Christ Jesus is that someone who can give us the forgiveness of sins that we long for. Christ is not only the great king, but he's also the means by which the office of king is accomplished. He is the suffering servant. He suffers for us. Christ is exalted exactly because he is humbled as a suffering service. And he is established at the right hand of the majesty on high because of his work as our prophet, our priest, and our king. The cross is Christ's pulpit which He preaches to the world repentance and forgiveness of sins. But the cross is also Christ's altar that He willingly goes on and gives Himself to make purification for our sins. The cross is also the throne in some ways where Christ is lifted up as the King of glory. We see Christ fulfill these threefold offices of the Old Testament perfectly, and that is done at the work of the cross, but also in His exaltation. John T. Rhodes, in his book uh, *Man of Sorrows, King of Glory*, says this: In this present age, we are to fix our minds on both Christ crucified and Christ risen. Christ in his humiliation and Christ in his exaltation. Perhaps at times, in an understandable desire not to lose sight of the cross, we have urged people to look there alone and have neglected to look also to glory. In his humiliation through the work of the cross, we see Christ as prophet, priest, and king. But not only there, we see it in his resurrection And this could be a long sermon. We could talk about the resurrection and then the exaltation. But we'll just talk about the exaltation and we'll close with Christ as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king in his exaltation. This is the last point. We see all three of these offices, the threefold offices, displayed in glory. We see that in this passage, but we also see it in Revelation 2. 5 five to 7. And I'm not going to exhaustively exegete this passage. Um, Pastor Matt went through Revelation already. If you want to look at this sermon and uh, read through it or listen to it, it's on the website, and I'd encourage you to go through that series. But here we see in this passage that Christ is our prophet, is our priest, and is our king right now in his exalted glory before the Father and before the heavenly assembly. Revelation 5 5 to 7. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of Judah, or the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. right there, Christ is given the scroll, the word of God. He's given the title deed, the inheritance of every single thing. He is our prophet, and the word, the scroll, is given to him. And when the time comes for the consummation of all things, Christ will open it up and read them, and we see that through Revelation. Christ commands the word of God as our exalted prophet. But also, John is told to look at the line of Judah. Line of Judah. We're told in, in Genesis 49, when Jacob is on his deathbed and he's blessing his sons, we're told that the scepter will not depart from Judah. David comes from Judah. Christ comes from David from Joseph. And Judah is described as a cub, a lion cub. He's not a mature lion yet. And there's no mature king yet all throughout the Old Testament. They all fail. They're all lion cubs. They're little lions. But here we see the lion of Judah. He is the great king. And he stands in glory. But we also see when John looks, he doesn't see the line of Judah. There's a switcheroo that happens. Instead, he sees a lamb standing as though it was slain. Christ on the work or on the cross completed his work for the purification of sins. And he's standing as though he was slain because he defeated death. And he could stand now. He rose from the grave. With a mighty triumph o'er his foes. Up from the grave he rose. And he stands now as our high priest before the assembly of God. You see, we need Christ as our exalted prophet. Christ as our exalted Priest, and Christ is our exalted King. Because we fail just like those Old Testament men. We fail as men and women of God to live up to the standard. We forget the words of God. We doubt His sacrifice. We don't submit to Him as King. We want to be masters of our own fate. But praise the Lord that Jesus in His glory, in His majesty, fulfills all of these offices in complete, integrated, balanced perfection. And I hope that this encourages you to see Christ in His exalted state, to look to the cross and see what was fought for and what was won and to look to His second coming. We need Christ as our prophet. We need His guidance. And we need His perseverance and encouragement. We need Him as our priest because we need the forgiveness of sins. And we need Him as our King so that He can have authority over our lives. Christ is Messiah by the Holy Spirit. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. And when he ascends, he gives us the Holy Spirit. He doesn't leave us on our own. And the Holy Spirit is not a substitute for Christ, but is how we are joined and united to Christ through his death and resurrection. We read that the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in you, lives in us who are believers. If you profess the name of Jesus Christ as Lord... you're saved and you have the holy spirit and you're sealed and the holy spirit relates Christ's work as prophet, priest and king to us because the holy spirit is given why so that we can recall all the words that Jesus said that's he says that when he gives it to the disciples so that he can relate Christ's prophetic word to our hearts and minister to us through the word The Holy Spirit is also a comforter, which relates to Christ's office as a priest. The Holy Spirit groans on our behalf in the ways words can express when we go before the throne. And it communicates our needs and our desires just as the Old Testament priests were to do, but in a greater way. And he's also a counselor. The Holy Spirit. He comes to declare and to give authority and also to guide and order our lives just as a king does. So we are two prophets, priests, and king. And Jesus is the greatest prophet, priest, and king. And we share in that. Do you know Jesus as your prophet? Do you love his word? Do you want him to speak to your heart? Do you know him as your priest? Are you sure of your salvation? He has made purifications for your sins. He is able to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Forgive us of all sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Do you know Christ as your king? Is he reigning and ruling over your life and your heart? I hope that he is. I hope that you look at Christ and you persevere in your faith and you don't drift away that you know what truth is. Jesus is the truth. Put your hope and trust and faith in him and you will be given new life that only he can give. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you, in your wisdom, Lord, long ago you spoke to us through your word, but in these last days you have spoken to us through your Son. Lord, we pray that he would speak to our hearts today, that the Spirit would convict us of sins, that we would rely on his grace and have assurance in our salvation. Lord, help us to marvel and magnify Christ Jesus. Help us to look to Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, help us put our trust in Him. And we will never be put to shame. We ask all these things, and we exalt Your name in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.